seat. And more seats here. Right. Yeah. Front row. So we have Jay today. Uh, you all know Jay, uh, director of the Center for Time Use Research. And uh, for many, many years, Jay is really the world leader in uh, time use study. So very pleased that Jay will be talking about gender division of labor and the intergeneration, intergenerational transmission of inequality. Right, it's a big paper, and I'm going to talk very quickly, and I'll need you to stop me if I'm not being clear. Okay? Mm -hmm. So do stop me, and, and it's no, no problem for me to stop and take another tag. Okay, so I've got a proposition, and the proposition is that um, gendered patterns of work and I'll say exactly what I mean by work in a moment, gender patterns of work have major impacts on class inequality of life, uh, of life chances, and particularly I'll be arguing that leads to a polarization of, large, of, life, of, life, uh, of life chances by essentially class, uh, by, by, by social class. And what I'm going to do is bring together two different fields of sociology that are really normally considered quite separately. One is um, the literature on, on household work strategies. If you've come across that word, you've probably associated it with Ray Pal. Ray Pal stole it from me, I have to say. We've been quarrelling about it in a friendly way for some time, but I actually have the proof. He was first into print with it, so we, uh, we have to give him so, so we have household work strategies, which is thinking about the balance of paid and unpaid work within a within a household and what organises it and how it's gone. And, and associating with household work strategies, the intergenerational transmission of advantage social mobility. Um, and what I'm talking about is based on two unpublished papers. Actually, the one with Mani Khan and Ori ought to be out in a working paper any minute. Colin's not here, so I can't reproach him with it. Colin's had it for the last couple of months. It'll come out on working paper series in the moment. The dynamics of social position, less security in place. That's the second half of, uh, of, of the talk. But there is a copy of, uh, of a version of it, if anyone's interested in it afterwards. And, and the whole paper is based on, and the, uh, based on a, um, on a, an intuition on a very simple theoretical intuition, which goes like this. Um, and it's essentially a Bordeauxian intuition that says that the things you do, the particular things you do in daily life, form the skills that you have to bring to the activities of daily life. It's a recursive proposition, and it's essentially uh, it essentially embodies Bourdieu's notion of habitus, where people people um, habitually engage in particular sorts of activities, and as such, form the skills that enable them to to engage in those activities, uh, those activities pleasurably or profitably, um, um, allow them to be effective participants in, in those activities. And of course, we're talking here about different sorts of embodied capital, embodied capital. I'm using as the general term for what, what 
um, what we think of as cultural capital, social capital, and what economists call human capital, by which they mean actually economically salient, <laughs> economically salient skills. Those are all examples of embodied capital. Activities of daily life allow you to develop, develop those embodied, embodied capitals. Now, if you engage in these activities at different rates, if, you, if some people spend more time in one sort of activity than another sort of activity, so it follows, the rate of building up those different sorts of embodied capital will, will be different. Obviously, among, among, other, among other things, one of those sorts of embodied capital is this human capital, this economically salient skills. If you spend more time engaged in paid work, you build up more economically salient skills. This is the way that the division of labor obviously affects life chances, at least within one generation, because if one, if one person in a heterosexual couple is engaging differentially in paid work, mostly in paid work, and the other mostly in unpaid work, <coughs> The skills that the one who, and guess which one it is, the one who engages in the paid work, the skills that they'll accumulate will be, um, um, uh, will, uh, will be to the advantage of that individual. And in, in fact, it's the unpaid work of the other individual that's contributing to the, that's contributing to the, to the accumulation of the human capital, of the embodied capital of the, uh, 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 in the workplace of the other. Is that, is that straightforward? Sorry, I saw someone giggling. Was that because I stuffed something over my words, or is it clear? Yeah. Yep. Good. Okay. So, so differentiates life chances. But what I'm going to do also is to show that this has consequences, not simply within the life course, but across the life course. This, the, this, this differential process actually has polarizing effects um, in the inheritance of, of position across across generations. That's the intuition. Is that, is that reasonably clear? Apart from the last part, which I haven't explained, which I haven't explained at all, the idea is you behave in particular ways, the differences in the ways you, you behave lead to different rates of accumulation of, uh, of embodied capital, uh, of embodied capital, and in particular, if, if, if you've got a, a couple and one's engaging in paid work and the other isn't, one's in, uh, acquiring human capital in this economic sense and the other isn't, and that in turn um, has consequences for the life chances of, uh, of, of both individuals and of the couple as a whole. Okay, that's the, that's the intuition. Onward quickly, two, two steps here and two data sources. Um, the first step is that I'm going to suggest that um, different national systems of work regulation and gender ideologies, I'm not going to try to disentangle those, but they, but they go together, that, that different national work systems are strongly related with, with, um, with uh, different systems of regulation and ideology are strongly related with different patterns of historical change in work patterns, particularly the balance of work between, between men and women. And to demonstrate that, I'm going to use the multinational time use study, which 
continue to say more about, but the genius behind has just come in, behind it has just come in and is sitting at the back. That's, this is mostly Kimberly, Kimberly Fisher's work of the last decade, putting together the MTUS. And the second half of what I'm going to be talking about is British Household Panel Study, um, which will allow us to look at work sharing and the intergenerational and the intergenerational context. But first of all, step one is just the multinational time use study, and the multinational time use study is essentially it's a vast collection of information like this. This is a time use diary. You take an, a large national random sample of people and you get those people, sometimes individuals, sometimes all the people in a household, to fill in detailed diaries of this sort. This has a 10 minute, 10 minute interval. You can have it with open intervals and people going. You, you ask them what they were doing, whether they were doing other things at the same time, who was with you, where were you, sometimes some other things. In the, if anyone here came to the talk I gave a couple of, couple of weeks ago, um, a couple of weeks ago, though, you, you can have how much did you enjoy it here. Other things you can put there as well. Um, and what we what we what we essentially identify are people's days as sequences of events, where an event is described as a period of time during which none of these none of these fields varies. Okay, so events, and in an average diary, you might average day diary, you might have anything from 15 to 25 or 30 events. So what we have are uh, a number of surveys collecting this sort of data from various points of time. This is pretty much the current state of the multinational time use study. We've got all the countries down there, the numbers in the middle are the numbers of days of random sample data that we've managed to put together. This is from beg, borrowing, and stealing, bullying, and um, bullying and cajoling people across the world to give us their raw data, and then working very hard to transform this data into a, into a, into a constant format. It currently consists of, well, well in round terms, it's 50 surveys and 500,000 days which is about 10 million events from across the world over the, last, over, the last, over the last 40 years. It's a huge data set. There's a vast number of different things that you, can, that you can do with it. The very simplest thing you can do with it is calculate time budgets. Time budgets are simply, in the very simplest form, of just adding up the amounts of time that you spend in the first activities. And, okay, so then we press on to have a look at differences and changes over time in unpaid work. Here are our spaghetti diagrams. Well, actually, it's not quite spaghetti. We've got all unpaid work, men and for women. We've got from the 1960s through to the 2000s. And we've got minutes per day. And if you look at men, the men are sort of going up. And if you look at women, the women are sort of going down. Lots of variation, lots of confusion. We can't really see what one thing you might notice, however, is that while they do seem to balance each other, that's only because I've drawn it with 180 at the top of the Y scale here and 450 at the top of the Y scale there. Do, don't, don't lose sight of that fact. Nevertheless, one's going up, the other's going down. There's something to be said for us chaps. It's not a, if not a very great deal since we're not um, since we haven't got quite far enough. Okay, but what we've got here is spaghetti. 
we can't say very much about what's going on except the general downward, downwardishness or, yeah. Does this include childcare? Pardon? This does include childcare, I believe, yes. Um, one way that has been that has been thought of to sort out this sort of spaghetti is the idea of welfare regimes that came initially from, well, the idea of state regimes that came initially from Yes, Yes, Bing Anderson in his Three Worlds of Welfare Capitalism at the end of the 1980s. This was immediately pounced on, I, I should say, by feminist sociologists and economists who said, quite rightly, that poor, gen that poor Yester had forgotten to use the word gender anywhere in the whole of this very exciting book. So what you find through the 1990s is a whole literature, Jane Lewis, I think, is probably the best of these guys, who spend monograph after monograph being rude about Yester's, um, Yester's typology and then frankly ending up pretty much with Yester's typology at the end of the at the end of the day. They're quite right to criticize him. He hadn't thought this out this out as well as possible as well as he possibly might have done. He has made I, I I believe he was certainly intending to make the most generous of amends to this, frankly, unnecessarily vicious criticism. The latest book, it's almost never that I, that I would recommend a new book that I haven't read. Nevertheless, I'm recommending a new book that I haven't read because it only came out at the end of last year and I haven't got it yet. It's The Incomplete Revolution, Adapting to Women's New Roles by Yester and but I've been talking to him a lot over the last few years, so I know what he's going to say, and it's essentially consistent with this picture of, of um, welfare regimes and gender ideologies, and it's got his three plus some other catch-alls, but all that's relevant here is Southern liberal regimes, modified breadwinder gender, gender ideology, women have both paid work and, and, and caring roles, social democratic, a genuine dual, uh, dual earner family model, high unemployment rate the entire, with the intent of having equality in access to the labor market, full equality in access to the labor market and, and shared gender roles, um, uh, and, and fully shared gen gender roles. There's a conservative corporatist regime, um, um, which is central, the, the, the central Northern Europe, Netherlands, France, Germany, Austria is a, a good examples of these countries where, where you might talk of a weak familist gender ideology where men are primarily the breadwinners, women are primarily carers, but nevertheless there's, it's understood that, that particularly over time there's going to be change. In, in, and finally you've got southern regimes. This is This is... Now, I'm not, going to, uh, I'm not going to talk very much about, about those regimes. And there's a lot of theory that goes behind these regime constructions. And I'm not going to talk about that theory at all. I'm simply going to say, for the moment, some of the theory will emerge as a result of what I'm going to be talking about. But for the moment, let's merely say that these are different ways of regulating um, access to work, 
uh, to different sorts of work within within families that differ systematically among these groups of uh, uh, among these groups of countries that may or may not be associated that are obviously associated with different cultures and histories and distributions of gender ideologies in the various countries and so on. But I'm just using this as these as 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 four categories that I'm going to operate with. We can talk about what the, the theory that lies behind them, but I'm not going to do any more here. Um, here's a regression equation. We needn't take very much notice of this regression equation, except to note that I'm modeling, um, I'm modeling you know, this, this, these are taking all of the 350,000 days in which that fit the um, that fit the uh, 20 to 60 time time limits um, that I set for the analysis, and I'm using various personal characteristics like age and age squared, and and what your youngest and what your youngest child is as the as the um, um, as the uh, as, in, as predictor variables, the variable I'm trying to predict is that unpaid work time thing that produced the, the spaghetti graph that we were that we were looking at before. We've got um, we've got the time period. We've got some interactions between the time period and the regimes. Uh, we've got various control variables, and we've got some dummies with corporatist, and we've got a squared time trend, time counted backwards from 2004 for reasons that become that are unnecessary to pursue, but we can that we can talk about. We've got a product of each of the four regimes with the time trend. We've got dummies. Um, obviously for only three of the four, which means that what the, the default category here is in fact the corporatist regime where year equals zero, which is 2004. Okay, and that's the contrast that we're, that's the contrast that we're estimating in these two men's and women's. You don't need to look further at that, at that picture because that is the, those are the, um, the tracks that they produce. Now remember previously, three slides ago, we were looking at men's work and at women's work. One going down and the other going up. One going up, the other going down. And what, what all I've done here is produced, um, uh, instantiated each of those two equations for pairs of, um, uh, um, uh, for, for, men, for men and for women of similar characteristics. And then I've, calculated domestic division of labor as that would predict by dividing the women's purport, the women's total number of minutes by the total of the men's plus the women's number of so 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 what we've got on this axis is the predicted from the equation proportion of domestic work carried out by carried out by women and you've got years here and what you find are significantly different trends, neatly different trends for the different for the different uh, for the different groups. The southern has disappeared, but it's up there. We've got very little data for that. We needn't worry about it. But what we've got is the um, 
and the Nordic countries here, the liberal countries here, and the um, uh, and the corporatist and the corporatist and corporatist countries there. Um, okay, well that's that's you know the, the, the equations work. They're well identified. We've got good significant significant results. How do they relate to the data when we actually plot the curves onto the data? Well, they actually go very nicely. That's the Nordic women's proportion of all domestic work. And here I've gone back to that original to get these. First of all, there's the plotted curve. The, 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 that, that's the plotted curve that we were just looking at for the, um, for the Nordics. And then these are the, uh, these are the, sorry, that's the predicted curve for the Nordics. And these are the actual plotted curves taken by getting the mean amounts of paid work that women of that age in each country did and dividing it by the total mean, total of the means of men and women. So this is the actual means from the survey, and this is, and that's the plotted, and that's the plotted, that's for the Nordic women, then we put in the liberal women, the same combination, and then the corporatist women, and then the southern. Okay, so you can see that, let me go back, you can see that that picture is pretty much representing is, pretty, is properly and significantly, it says it. The conclusion that we draw from this is that regimes matter at least for the trends in domestic division of labor over time. The Nordic regime succeeds, has the consequence of making the division of labor much more equal than the um, liberal or the corporatist one. And of course, the thing to notice is that you go back to the 1960s or the 1970s, and you find that there ain't much different, but difference between, between those regimes. What's happening is that it's what's going on in those countries over this time. It's what's going on in those countries over this time maybe secular cultural change, maybe independent public regulation, but most likely it's those two, it's the two things going, going together are leading to quite different patterns of behavior, public regulation leading, leading to different patterns of change in private household behavior. Why does this matter? Well, the second thing to note is a universal phenomenon that I'm not going to not going to pursue that economists have discovered very recently and labelled ISO work, and that is if you look at people's time budgets and you add up the total amounts of time paid work plus unpaid work, you find that men and women do pretty much the same. So that if you've got different gender divisions of labour within the household, that also means that you've got different divisions of paid work between men and women. The women are doing more of the housework; they're doing less of the less of the paid work. And then to go back to my to my um, to my to, to starting intuition, the consequence of this must be that the two sexes are accumulating. Um, um, are accumulating 
economically salient capital, that particular embodied resource, the human capital that economists talk about, that the two sexes are accumulating, are accumulating um, um, economic capital at differential rates. That is the first half of the talk. Public regulation, it says, public regulation has real consequences within the life course for the pattern of for the pattern of accumulation of advantage and disadvantage by individuals. The second step in this argument is to say um, is to say that public regulation influences life course mobility and leads to gender polarization in the inheritance of social position. Now the proposition that I'm making is actually as general as that, but I'm going to illustrate it by a much more specific proposition, which is to say that if you look around the juncture of the, of the birth of the first child, you find a really dramatic example of this, of this gendered polarization that has inherited consequences. And for this, I'm going to use my other baby, which is the, the British Household Panel Study. Um, a definition. Leavers. I'm now going to look just at women. I'm going to look at all women who were in employment at the time uh, before their first birth. And this means most women in the UK. And before the recession hit us, this did mean pretty much all women um, in, the, in the UK. Um, you know, with, with some marginal, interesting, but aberrant ex exceptions. Essentially, we can say all women in the UK were in employment the year before first birth. And then, the, and then we take, we say that we've got a group of leavers. These are people who left employment, um, who were not in employment the year after first birth. We interviewed these women on average 13 or 14 months after their after their, um, after their birth, if they were not in employment at that time, we call them, we call them um, leavers. Um, if they stayed in employment th throughout this period, they can take maternity leave, of course, or they could come back part time. But as long as they stayed in employment for all the six, for all, uh, for all the six following um, following years, then we call those people stayers. And the contrast is between those two extreme groups. There's another group in the middle, but I'm not going to talk about that group in what in what follows. Okay, so. Um, Here's, here's a, uh, some more. I'm, I'm not going to talk any serious theory, but this is, but this is, this is, the, this is as close as we get to it. It is observed that couples tend to marry like for like. Men and women marry people like themselves. It may actually be better to think of this as being men, ma uh, men marrying women like their mothers women marrying men like their fathers. And that's, that's really the point that I'm going to come to in just a, in, in just a moment. Um, now, this is where the regime choices bite. Homogamy doesn't matter at all if you live in Denmark from the point of view of childcare. Whoever you are, 
you get married, your children can start after eight weeks, can start in the can start in the crash. It's a lovely warm environment, it's not pushy, there's no there's no attempt to build human capital age nine months. It's a it's a really warm and happy environment. You can do it, there's no however, a regime like ours, where there's not proper child childcare provided free and extensively on on demand, the only people who are actually able to buy um, to buy childcare after the birth are those who've not just got similar human capital but have similar and high levels of human, yeah. Two higher, I mean, two school teachers find it pretty difficult to, to um, you know, two brain surgeons can afford, um, can afford it, and certainly two supermarket workers can't, um, 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 and two clerical workers certainly can't afford childcare in this in this way. So the so those whose well it comes down to this those whose mums and dads since we've got homogamy those whose mums and dads were pretty rich who've got pretty rich pretty rich children who've married each other they can um, they can buy in the childcare but at the other end of the scale the scale you can't do that. Um, now, this obviously has consequences for um, this obviously has consequences for men's and women's human capital accumulation. And what we're going to do now is to look at the retrospective data in the BHPS to calculate something that we call the Essex score because we developed it while we were working at Essex University. Whether we'll change it to be the Oxford score when we next publish a version of it, I'm not quite so sure. But it's a human capital, it's a human capital measure, and um, and we can estimate that human capital measure. Um, do you have a slide on this? Yes, I do. Um, we can estimate this human capital measure by using all sorts of information that we've got inside the British Household Panel Study, not just about the current job, but about each individual's previous job history and their education and other aspects of their life. And what we work out, what the Essex score gives us, is the same thing that a shadow wage indicator would give you in the economic literature, which is a prediction of the sort of wage that this person could expect to receive if they were in employment. Okay, and we use the proper, um, do I mention the word Heckman there? We obviously make a Heckman um, because you uh, 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 use a Heckman procedure to infer what this wage would be, looking at the whole sample, looking at the processes of first of all selection into employment, and then using a, something like an OLS regression to uh, an OLS regression to work out what the what the um, uh, what what the effects of various characteristics are on the wages, and then adjusting those OLS coefficients downwards to take account of the selection into employment of those generally less well qualified people who so uses those uses that sort of sophisticated technique to work out what the expected wage would be based on the life experience of of, uh, of everyone in the of everyone of everyone in the uh, the great advantage of this of course is that if you use wage to classify people you're excluding the unwaged 
use a human capital indicator, yes, it's score, you've got everyone in it. And what we're going to do is to look at um, what follows the first birth. And we're going to look for the 10 years in the BHPS after the first birth and separate uh, and estimate separate models for mothers in each, um, in each birth decade. And we're using the retrospective work history from the BHPS to work out to work out what the sequence of events was, of employment and other events was, for these women born in successive work, work uh, birth decades. And we're going to look just at the 1920s through to the 1950s. And we're going to look at the annual change in the Essex score. That's to say, um, that's to say the Essex score is this shadow wage. And what we're modelling is, year after year, we're modelling changes in the expected wage that, of course, be, be dependent on largely the employment behaviour of, in this case, it's just mothers. Okay, and you come out with a, um, with a model that I'm not even going to try to talk through, except to say that as the econometricians require, we're modelling change this year, and you have to enter the change in human capital this year. You have to uh, you have to enter the absolute level of human capital last year. That has all sorts of interesting interesting and complex effects that I'm not going to that I'm not going to talk about. Um, um, but we can come back to these are the modelled results that we get for the five cohort, no, for the four cohorts, we've got 20s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. The year before, the year after, two years after, five years after, nine years after childbirth. Okay? And what we see overall for all women is, you know, because you've got this process of withdrawal from the labor force, you've got an initial dip and then something of a recovery. But now I've broken this down by women whose parents were in the top quarter, whose parents were in the top quintile, and looking separately at women whose parents were in the bottom quintile. Now, of course, these, parents, these women whose parents were in the top quintile also probably had husbands who were in the top quintile as well, and similarly for those, for those people. So, these are, these are advantaged women, duly advantaged women, because in general they've got, they've got, they've got um, husbands, they've got husbands from rich backgrounds as well, and these are doubly. Okay, that is, that's the general picture. You find um, a neat rise, well actually that, I think it goes a, a dip, 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, 1950s. Those women are getting better off in terms of their expected earnings decade, decade by decade. And actually, so are these women, but much less so. Now, there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a smaller relative improvement over this time, and the absolute levels, and the absolute levels of earnings are much, are much lower. And you can pursue this just to look in general at at social mobility, it's another it, it, it's, it's another metric that you can use to examine social mobility. But let me let me press on with this lever staying stayer um, business because this 
shows rather dramatically what the advantages are of particular courses of action that are available to some people and not available to others. Now, what we've got here, I've just taken these two groups, the, the, the groups who stayed in, in that way I defined in after the first year, and that uh, uh, out after, in for six years, and people who dropped out, that's just all the people who were out one year, one year after, one year after. They may have returned subsequently, but, but nevertheless, they, now, the model says they're the same. In fact, there's some difference between these, between these groups if you try and predict backwards. But the way the model's set up, they have the same value before they, before they, um, before they um, have their child. The stayers in the 1950s, that's the most recent of the cohorts we've got, had hardly a drop in the first year, because they went back to work quite quickly, and then they carried on going up afterwards. The leavers, this is just the people who were out after one year, they could have gone back off, they had a huge drop to start with in terms of their, because they stayed out for at least a year in, initially, and then they found it very difficult to get back in, and they end up well below the, okay, are you all clear around what we're looking at? The, this is the result of modeling, yeah. I have that. Uh, when, when you mean that the parents were in the, in the top quintile, you mean the, the father or both? Um, in fact, in fact, no, in fact, what I did, because you're using this nice measure of human capital, you can just add them up. So I took the sum of the mothers and the fathers, and then I ordered them and I took the top quintile. So okay. it, really is parent, it really is parents, not. That's a great advantage. Can't add categories, but you can add numbers, and these are addable numbers. Okay, so you've got the picture of what we've got here. This is just women in the top parental, whose parents are in the top parental, who, got, got a, who, who are either leavers and stayers. And we've got them for um, just one age cohort, uh, for just one birth cohort. Next picture, there's all four of the birth cohorts. Okay, they've all got the same basic shapes. That's not surprising because they're all estimated from the same, from the same equation, but they, shift, but they shift upwards pretty much as you've got. So that's the, that's the all remember in the top parental quintiles. That's the same picture for the bottom parental quintiles. Notice there's a, a very different shape here. The stayers look a bit like the stayers in the, the stayers in the, um, uh, with, with parents in the, in the top quintile, but the movers, the, the, the levers, go down and stay down and hardly, and in fact they in most cases, they don't regain their previous position even 10 years afterwards. Okay, now it's a bit difficult to see all these lines crossing, so we can do a little bit of arithmetic to calculate what the lever-stayer penalty is. Just divide one by the other, in effect. What we've got is, is the stayer human capital for each year divided by the lever human capital for each year um, minus one. Okay? So we've got the ratio, pretty much the ratio of the human. Now, what have we got? We've got, that gives us the penalty that you pay for dropping, for dropping out. And what you find is, 
exactly as you might have expected, that the penalty paid by middle class, by, I'm sorry, by upper class women, the penalty paid by women whose parents come from the top quintile, that penalty has been pretty much continuously falling for those successive for those successive birth decades. It falls from a sort of 35% penalty after 10 years to a 25% penalty after 10 years. Much better for women at the top. Why? Well, it's exactly what we said before. It's straightforwardly, there's them, and, um, and uh, they've got, they've got um, um, high human capital parents who've helped them to gain high human capital positions and they marry high human capital men and the and the combination of the family human capital makes it possible to makes it possible to buy in childcare which allows those women to maintain their 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 own their own human capital over time. Whereas the penalties for the least well least um, well provided for women have been growing and growing and growing over this over this entire over this entire over this entire period. Wing is beginning to look nervously at his watch, so I'm going to press on, but we may want to come back to these to these pictures. So what we've got, what we've got here is remember step one was that regimes, public policy choices intersecting with public cultural with, with, with cultural differences, okay, but public policy choices have effects for the gender balance of work. And here we've got very clear evidence of the gender balance of work leading to, well, to this situation where on one hand, those from the most privileged, privileged parental circumstances um, um, actually find the, the penalties for, for short um, departures from the workforce um, falling over time, and that's because they can buy childcare, whereas women with parents in the bottom quintiles who can't buy childcare, those penalties are rising. Now, remember, it's one off. Either you can buy childcare or you can't buy childcare. You can, okay, you might say you can buy some childcare, but if you can buy some childcare, you can only buy, you can only let your wife, if, if you and your wife can buy some childcare, then that only means that some of the time you might want to be working for money and accumulating human capital, you can do it. Essentially, the consequences of, the, of, this, of this process are to lead to polarization of life chances structured by parents' human capital. You marry someone, it corresponds to your father's social position. If your father's social position was at the top, you'll have lots of money that will allow you to buy the childcare and other services because this work, the, 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 this works works in other circumstances other than just than just the um, other than just this this instance around uh, around the birth uh, the, uh, around the birth time um, for those with. Poor parents with low human capital parents who probably have low human, low human capital themselves and hence low human capital spouses, not able to buy childcare, even though 
the wife may have had the same human capital as the husband when she got married or when they formed the partnership, the consequence of the partnership is to reduce her human capital. Polarization. Polarization related to homogamy and domestic practices. And if that ain't bad enough, it gets worse. What we've got at the same time that these changes of um, changes in domestic practices that we've been looking at and that some countries have been shifting their patterns of regulation so as to improve the, the, the position of their, of, their, um, of their populations. We've also had another major demographic change and that is almost the invention of the marital split. Now, once upon a time, at the beginning of the 1950s, where no women, where virtually no women worked, where you didn't suffer very much penalty from, for leaving, the, for leaving the, um, the workforce when you had a baby because you never expected to be in the, in, in the labor force. And it was perfectly okay to do this because your domestic work would, would contribute indirectly to your husband's paid work and your husband would earn and work and earn and work. And as he worked, he'd accumulate human capital and he'd, get, uh, uh, and he'd rise in his, in his profession and half or a quarter, or whatever your domestic practices were, what he earned would come necessarily to you. Well, the other thing that happened at this point was the growth of divorce, the growth of marital breakup over the same period. You've got this, so for those people who are forced out of the labor market because of these processes of homogamy and costly childcare and and so on, those people at home are now increasingly at risk that the husband runs away with his secretary or his boss or his, um, uh, he runs away, he carries off all of that human capital that he's accumulated as a result of your hard work um, looking after the baby at home, he runs off with his human capital and leaves him with the baby. Um, your household income goes crashing down, his household income Goes um, goes up, and you've got another child growing up in you've got another child growing up in poverty. Yet another element in this process of <coughs> polarisation. Those are the two steps. Public regulation can have an effect in equalising the gender balance of different sorts of work. If you don't follow that sort of public regulation and you follow the um, corporatist or the southern pattern that promotes the the breadwinner um, the breadwinner you either reproduce patterns of um, um, inequality of human inequality and in access to to um, to to advantageous paid employment or you even increase it through these two mechanisms of restricted access to <coughs> restricted access to childcare and increasing household splits that push all the resources in one direction and push the children in another. And that's the whole of the story.
and I'll, I'll run by two minutes. Thank you, Jay. <laughs>